As they say in the musical Hamilton, tuning into this podcast, you are officially in the room where it happens. Welcome to In the Room. Hosted by Canvas Credit Union President and CEO Todd Marksberry, In the Room focuses on the journeys and advice of CEOs and owners alternating between Colorado organizations and credit unions across the world. Join us as Todd and Company demystify leadership and explore the many rooms leaders occupy. You're listening to In the Room. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this week's In the Room with Todd Marksberry. I'm, I'm super excited to have one of the coolest cats uh, on the planet and in Colorado, certainly. Actually, one of the smartest dudes I've ever met, uh, at Rico Munn, who is the 16th superintendent of the Aurora Public Schools system here in our magnificent state of Colorado. Um, since I moved to Colorado um, a little bit over four year, uh, five years ago, uh, I've enjoyed getting a chance to meet some of the uh, the leaders here in Colorado, and, and Enrico is one of them. He's one of my favorite people. Got to know him through uh, our partnership with Colorado State University, and and then have got had the opportunity to spend some time with him over breakfast and some other things uh, to get to know one another a little bit better and and uh, learn about his past, which I'll tell you about here in a second. Uh, and in fact, in uh, late 2019. We really got an opportunity at, at the end of this past year um, to, to spend some time with one another and, and dream. Uh, when, when Canvas um, was blessed enough to be able to donate $60,000 to erase student lunch debt at 18 Title I schools within the Aurora Public Schools District, uh, helping ease the financial burden for over 1,400 families, which is just was a special thing for us. Um, let me get back to, to, to Rico and tell you a little bit about his bio. Prior to joining um, the Aurora Public School System, he served in a variety of, leader, variety of leadership roles in Colorado's legal and business communities. In 2012, uh, he was appointed to the Board of Governors for the Colorado uh, State University System by Governor John Hickenlooper, and he served until 2020. In 20, or 2002, he was elected to the Colorado State Board of Education, where he served in, until 2007. In addition to that, he was also a member of of Governor Bill Ritter's cabinet, where he served as the executive director of the Colorado Department of Higher Education from 2009 to 2011. Um, He served on Governor Ritter's cabinet as executive director of uh, also the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies from 2007-2009, where he oversaw the Colorado divisions of civil rights, banking, real estate, insurance, financial services, securities, professional licensure, Public Utilities and Consumer Council. Uh, he's been a successful attorney and practiced commercial litigation with a national law firm for over a decade. And apparently he describes his uh, law degree as the graduate degree in problem solving. So we'll learn a little bit about that. As a litigator, Rico dealt with a wide variety of people and situations, including financing, construction, education, refugee populations, and crisis management. Um, he's also uh, extremely active in uh, the metro area in the nonprofit community. He, he served on the Denver Foundation Board and was a founder of the Denver Urban Debate League. And he currently sits on the board of Early Milestones Colorado, which is an early childhood education organization. He's a graduate of Midland, Midland Lutheran College in Fremont, Nebraska, where he received a BA in secondary education, was named Student Teacher of the Year, by the way, in 1993. And he got his JD from the University of Denver, uh, Sturm College of Law. So, whew, man, Rico, 
that's a lot of stuff, my friend. Welcome to our podcast. You need to stop and get a drink of water after all that? or I need a drink of water and cut. We're done with your <laughs> podcast. Listen, here's the most important part of this, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this. He's been married to his wife, Kay, since 1998, and he's the proud father of two middle school students, which we'll learn a little bit about um, during this time. So let's dive right in. I just told everybody about your bio, but share with us your own story in terms of personal and professional and what, you know, the things that have led you over many years to where you are today. Is that a, is that a fair question? That's, that's a big question. I think, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know that my story is particularly unique, uh, in the scheme of things that, you know, I'm the son and grandson of army sergeants, on uh, one side of my family, but I'm also uh, the grandson of a convicted murderer and the son of an illegal immigrant. And it's a lot of different experiences and a lot of different traditions that have informed, I think, how I see the world and how I, how I do things. I've been blessed, uh, my, my parents, uh, Robert and Donna, who are people of faith who brought me up in a deep belief around my faith. Uh, my mother's passed on, my father's still with us today. and. Uh, they, uh, when they moved us to Colorado from Pennsylvania, we really uh, had a reset in our life and, and how we did things. And I've been blessed to uh, live and be part of this state since I was you know, 10 years old. That's fantastic. So, so help me, um, when, you were, when you started to go to school and, and obviously went to school, as I said, up in Nebraska, what, uh, what during that time, uh, you know, probably towards the end, um, made you say, hey, I want to go to law school. I want to, I want to be yeah, well, actually, I, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little kid. Um, and really, I think it started with Perry Mason reruns as a kid and just being enamored with, you know, what looked like an exciting way to, to live my life. I didn't know any lawyers. I don't think I met a lawyer until I was in law school. Um, but just really the idea of being able to, uh, to engage in, uh, verbal combat to uh, to engage in trying to rectify problems through that mechanism was always fascinating to me. So uh, I had always intended to go to law school. I went to college and I got my degree in education because I also had a passion around education and also wanted to have that opportunity available to me, uh, but it was always intended to end in uh, pursuing my law degree and I was able to do that and loved the practice of law and did that for a, a significant period of time. Uh, and then just changed, you know, how I use those skills into a different place. Yeah. So, so you were practicing. Um, what was it? Ten years. Uh, I mean, I practiced for about fifteen years. About uh, fifteen years. Well, what? So, what? Uh, what happened? I'm always curious um, for somebody like you who's in public service now. What happened during that time was uh, that that led you or led others? probably more importantly to ask you, hey, would you consider jumping out of private practice and, and serving uh, on the public side? What, what happened during that time that, that got you over to the state? So uh, when, uh, when Governor Ritter got elected, um, we had a, a number of mutual friends and I'd known him a little bit off and on uh, when he was the uh, district attorney for Denver and I believed in him, I believed in the things he wanted to do. Uh, I got a phone call asking if I would be interested in joining the cabinet, which is you know, a fairly unique phone call. Uh, and, you know, I appreciated 
one the opportunity to serve. But at the time, really, I thought of it as a temporary measure because by essence of term limits, I knew it wasn't a permanent job, right? It was a couple of years serving the government and then likely coming back to the practice of law. So that's what I did. I spent, uh, uh, he only served one term. I spent that entire term with him in his cabinet. And then I went back to my, my same law firm. Uh, but during that time period, I really enjoyed and appreciated, uh, you know, quite frankly, some of the things that I think you appreciate as being the CEO of something. <laughs> really having yeah. the chance to engage in a different way to really shape things that you believe in in a different way. Uh, and law firms don't really afford that opportunity uh, in, in that same way. And so I wanted to find ways to use the skills that I have, use, pursue the passions that I have. And this opportunity came along and I jumped at it. Absolutely. And, and let me ask you this too. I'm, I'm, I'm so curious about your background and the way things, you know, the, <laughs> The circuitous, the circuitous route that you've taken and all these things, but I'm assuming was it when you were with or through your um, your time on Governor Ritter's cabinet um, that uh, they took notice of you at Colorado State and asked you to be a part? Was was is that how you your entry point there? Uh, yeah, more or less. So um, my second cabinet position was, as you said, the head of higher education, which obviously I got deeply enmeshed in Colorado's education, higher education system and, and the structures. And uh, when I was uh, leaving uh, government service and as Governor Hickenlooper was coming uh, into office, uh, he asked me if there's anything I would be interested in doing. And I told him I, you know, I would be interested in serving on the board of CSU. Uh, and so he connected me with them and we just determined it was a good fit. And so he appointed me to that board. Excellent. And at what point did you then get that call for your current role as superintendent? Yeah, it was uh, kind of out of the blue. I was leaving my law firm uh, one day and I heard on the radio that uh, Superintendent John Barry, my predecessor here was retiring and that they were about to begin a search. And it really just resonated with me that that was something that I thought I had something to offer and something that sounded exciting to me. And uh, it's it's been uh, a pretty exciting <laughs> it's been a pretty exciting ride since you've been there. T tell you know tell tell our listeners if you will just so they can have some context. And 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 I'm I'm saying this because it's we have listeners all over the country and sure. and they are they're um, they live vicariously through some of us on these on these podcasts in terms of all the great things that we have in Colorado. But, but interestingly, not even a lot of people here in Colorado know much. They, they know of the Aurora public schools system, very obviously they know about Aurora in terms of the city here, but you've shared with me in the past about the diversity and you know, how many languages, uh, you know, the, the, the immigrant population that's there. Would you share if you sure. were, you know, you know, context and sort of what that looks like over there. Yeah, and you're right, APS is an exciting place, but it's also a complex place, and that was before COVID. Um, but we are the fifth largest district in the state. We serve about 40,000 kids. Uh, our kids speak 130 languages, sorry, 160 languages. They come from 130 countries. They're about 70% free and reduced lunch, which is the federal indica indicator of poverty. So we're a highly impacted district um, on a lot of measures. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, and, and I'm going to come back, if you don't mind, to 
some of the great work that that you know you would say the leaders your your team the team you work with are doing some incredible things in that community but um, let me hit on the COVID thing, if you don't mind. This has been yep. really uh, um, uh, just such a strange time. You know, would you do me a favor and talk a bit about um, what the team has done to serve your teachers, the staff, students, families, et cetera, during this um, pandemic? Yeah, I'd be happy to because I'm so incredibly proud of our team and what uh, the work that we've done over the last, uh, what, five months now. So on March 12th, uh, we declared uh, an extended spring break, right? We were, we were just about to start spring break. And uh, the first COVID case in Colorado was diagnosed on March 5th. And then, as you know, it just took off like a wildfire. And by the end of that week, we were saying, you know, we should probably extend spring break, give their time for the incubation period. At the time, thinking we'd be back, um, not knowing that that would extend into uh, quarantine, everybody uh, having to be home for for so many months and just not knowing what was ahead of us. But so we declared spring break on March 12th. However, on, as it became clear that this would extend, we stood up a couple of things. One, we stood up a food program. So by March 17th, we started uh, setting up food distribution locations all around the city of Aurora. And as of uh, last week, we had served 1.8 million meals between March 17th and last week to uh, our students, to their families, and to quite frankly, anybody who walked up and said they were hungry. Uh, on top of that, in, in about 10 days from uh, March 12th to I think it was about March 23rd or so, we created a, a remote learning, an online learning program for our district. Uh, and then we handed out 18,000 tech devices, Chromebooks and laptops to students over the course of three to five days. And we were up running school again uh, in that short window of time. Uh, we also use those technology devices to provide a mental health hotline for our students and their families. And so we utilize uh, our resources that the community have blessed us with uh, to engage our students over uh, telehealth platforms uh, with our mental health providers in a partnership with Aurora Mental Health to provide that support through what's been a very difficult time throughout the community. And then over the next three months, we began the process of creating contingency plans for how school would start in August. And we created a, you know, a massive plan, a set of plans uh, that has several contingencies so we can uh, perform school in person, we can perform fully remote or a hybrid of, of those options. And as I said, today is our first day of school. We are starting in a remote platform for a couple of weeks, uh, but I hope within a couple of weeks, we'll be back up to having kind of a hybrid where we have some of our kids in school uh, on a couple of days a week and some learning remotely as we all try to figure out how to navigate in this environment. Yeah, it, it, let me, I'm, I'm gonna back up for a moment on, on the student part, which as you know and I know is the most important um, group in, the, in, in this um, conversation. The, you had shared with me, and I think a lot of people wouldn't know, um, they've heard bits and pieces and stories, but you know, given that 70% of your student population falls into that, pov that, that, that poverty level category, you had shared with me that you guys, uh, you know, these students rely heavily on and their families rely heavily on those meals, right? So yeah. during school, and when this happened, when you had an extended spring break and then obviously they never came back, um, 
it was a big deal for you guys, not only to, to figure out how to do the remote learning piece, but to, to continue to provide these meals for these families, you know, going into the summer. And, and can you talk a little bit about that, about yeah. how the importance of that, the meals were? Well, we, we know from experience and from working with our kids and families that even during a normal school year, if it's uh, a weekend, a long weekend, Christmas break, spring break, our families struggle uh, because they rely upon us for so many of those meals during the week for kids uh, and sometimes over the weekend for families as well. And so when the prospect hit that we would have both an extended spring break, but then even a longer time out of school, we knew that there was a great need in the community. And so obviously our first and highest responsibility is to tr try and help our students. But then that need became so obvious for our broader communities, people were losing jobs, losing access to resources. And so we went out to community partners like Canvas to help support mm -hmm. uh, trying to you know, provide meals for adults and others who were not uh, our students, identified as our students, to make sure they could have a regular meal uh, during this entire crisis. And, and having said that, what did you guys do to, in order to support your teachers? Because I know that it, 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 um, it was really tough on families and students, but you know, your, your teachers had mental health concerns and things as well. How, how, what were some of the things, if you wouldn't mind sharing that you guys did yeah. to support them? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. One, obviously just, it, it's a it's a tight-knit group. It's a tight-knit community among our staff. And so just the typical check-ins, right? How are you doing? How's everybody feeling? Making sure that as much as we could, we gave them information about what was happening because a lot of the anxiety was just the not knowing what was happening and what would happen next. So we tried to continually put out social media information and videos explaining where we were and what next steps were and how they could be involved in that. Uh, we stood up with uh, the help of our healthcare partner, a new telehealth uh, mental health support uh, network that people could call into and could connect with those supports on top of our existing employee assistance program, trying to let people know that there were resources there. They didn't have to be alone and to connect through those resources. And then as we went through the summer, we tried to think about how do we ease the anxiety and the burden of the transition of coming back to school? And so we created a number of uh, educational programs, professional development programs, including working with partners like CSU Global to do some of that work, but also our own internal professional development team. And then we pushed back the start of school an additional week. So we have an additional week of time with just our teachers and our staff to get them acclimated to our online learning platforms and to the new changes to our buildings as we put up you know, new barriers and new uh, directions around how to navigate hallways and a whole series of new protocols around how to do cleaning and how to maintain uh, that physical safety and health environment. So, you know, obviously in the past several weeks, as we've been tracking towards fall in schools, it, it is the topic, you know, on, on social so media. Heard, yeah. <laughs> so you've heard, yeah. And, and you, know, you know, the education of our children is the most important thing um to many many of us and and you know the approach to learning during this time it, it seems to be a no-win situation and 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 so um you know people angry on both sides you know how have you and your leadership team rico approached you know the decision making during this time is that a fair question sure 
You know, we, we early on, uh, we started our planning for back to school around April 2nd, um, when it became clear that this was going to be a disruption uh, that was uh, unprecedented. And we stood up uh, four recovery teams. And this is based around best practices around some you know, state, federal department of education practices around how to recover lost school time. And we brought cross uh, divisional teams together to start problem solving all the, any number of operational and academic and logistical challenges we would have uh, dealing with this very new environment. And we first set out what we called a set of essential expectations. Right, what's the list of things that we're going to promise the community no matter what? Right, we, we can promise the community th this set of things no matter whether we're remote, whether we're in person, and to recognize there are some things that aren't on that list. There's some things that we can't promise that we'll be able to do. But we want it to be as transparent as we could to let people know what we can promise. And then we made a commitment that we would follow and work closely with public health officials. We wanted people to be assured that they would not get health advice from me. Right. I went to law school. Uh, I cannot give you health advice. Um, but what we would do is we would take that health advice and apply it to our physical circumstances and then explain what our plan was going forward. And so we continued to do that work over the summer. We continued to try and make that as transparent as we could with weekly board meetings where we're laying out where we were in that process and what those next steps were and what indicators we would look at to make decisions. And then ultimately we came to a place where the board decided that was not comfortable returning in person. And so they uh, wanted us to come back in a remote environment for at least a period of weeks. And then we have to figure out what our next step is from there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, it's not, a, it certainly isn't what we found around the country. It's certainly not a one size fits all. No. Uh, for sure. Let me ask you this, you know, you, you had made mention about your role as a leader, you know, me being the CEO of Canvas. I think that uh, something, I, I, this is going to be rhetorical probably, but um, we, people like you and I, the, the, the question is, is, you know, do we think that we know everything? The answer is no, we don't know everything. And I think that in, in our leadership roles, you and I have, have probably figured out similarly that um, we need to listen more than we need to talk. Um, during this time, what's your approach, Rico Munn's approach in terms of listening to your leaders, your teachers, your your um, parents, your community, um, as you've led uh, APS. Yeah, and I certainly agree with you. I don't believe that I know everything. What I do, I know who to call. Um, that's <laughs> my, my best leadership trait. Um, you know, we've tried to, and I've tried to, as much as possible, have mechanisms that allow for that feedback, right? Um, so that we put out from our position of expertise, our best knowledge, our best understanding of the circumstances, and try to let people know, given this understanding, given this set of facts, here are the ways that we think we can respond. So for example, uh, we put out a community survey in June 2nd that said, look, um, we have, here, here are the size of our buildings. Here's what the social distancing rules are. We can, we can do this three ways, right? Um, give us your thoughts around that. So we weren't gonna ask the community just what do you think because th there were restrictions, right? Where there were sideboards. So we wanted to be honest about that and very clear about that. But within those restrictions, we had some flexibility and we wanted to engage in that conversation. 
So I think what's important when we engage in any listening process is that we don't set false expectations, that we're clear around, here are the things that we have to adhere to. But within that, now let's have a conversation, let's have a dialogue. And the dialogue I think is different for parents than it is for teachers than it is for our school leaders and for our board around different decisions that they have to make, different feedback and input uh, where their, uh, their expertise and their perspective is incredibly vital. So we try to get it from all of those different levels and all those different angles. Let me ask you this question. When, when uh, you know, obviously you share that you guys are starting today being the first day in these first couple of weeks um, at a minimum online, what will it look like when, in terms of um, those protocols and things for teachers and students when you guys um, do begin to ease into the in-person instruction? Well, as I said, we've got several contingency plans, and that'll depend upon what the public health environment is at the time. Uh, and there's certain thresholds we'll be looking at and certain kind of triggers along the way. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, our goal is to have as many of our kids back in in-person instruction as is safe and healthy. And so uh, if that's only a few of our kids, then we'll, we've got plans around how, how to do that and then plans of how to scale from there. And likely we will you know, start small and build from there, kind of testing our processes and procedures along the way and staying in close contact with public health officials every step of the way. Right. Let me ask you this, and this is a question that might seem a little bit odd to some who are listening. Um, I think everybody would agree as they look around, it's not a one size fits all. No. There are different circumstances um, based on what parts of the country we're talking about. Uh, if it's a rural area in Montana as, as compared to somewhere like uh, Aurora, but is, what are the, there ha I would have to think that there are additional considerations for a school, uh, uh, a school system like Aurora Public Schools given 70% of your student population are at the, the uh, of families of, of uh, um, at the poverty level. Are there additional considerations that you guys have to take in that, that maybe Douglas County schools, you know, yeah. they aren't quite the same? Well, the way I've been describing this to people is every school district is doing the exact same thing uh, in, in a way, right? So there's two set of facts. There are what I call the facts in the air, right? There's, those are the transmission rates in your community, hospitalization rates, incident rates, all those things, right? Those are the facts in the air. And then there's facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are, what, what do my student population look like? What's the condition and age of my buildings, my HVAC systems? So every school district in the, in the country is taking their facts in the air, comparing them to their facts on the ground, and then making the best decision for them. I have different facts than Denver does, than Douglas County does, and Cherry Creek, even though we're next door, we have just different sets of facts that we're all dealing with. So one of the sets of facts that I'm dealing with that perhaps others are not, is um, that we know that remote learning will exasper exacerbate certain inequities, uh, achievement gaps and graduation gaps. We know it'll exacerbate those things. And if you have a community that is more uh, you know, holistic, does not have the same diversity that we do, that is not one of your concerns necessarily. For us, it's a massive concern. Uh, and so we have to factor that into our analysis around what's the cost benefit of uh, how, how do we view 
uh, the need to get back in person and how quickly. We also recognize that a lot of our students and their families don't have good internet connectivity. Yeah. Uh, they may not have language support at home to help them with their homework. Uh, there may be uh, challenges with childcare where you have two parents who both are working one or two jobs who can't really afford to have you at home all day in an unsafe environment. Uh, that's different than some communities have in, in what they're trying to figure out and deal with. So our facts in the air, our facts in the ground cause us to really look at that in a way that's specific to APS. And it really doesn't matter to us what they're doing in Tulsa or Charlotte or, or Denver for that matter. Well, and, and that's, that's the best explanation I've heard. Facts in the air, facts on the ground. I, I mean, I listen to way too much news these days. I, I, <laughs> I've actually just uh, uh, punted on, so you'll be, you might be glad to hear on Twitter and Facebook. I've, 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 I've punted this past week in too much stuff. Yeah. Uh, facts in the air that too, too many facts in the air, but uh, that's a, that's an incredible way to explain that. And that's why it's, um, I, you know, why I admire what you and your, your team and your teachers and, and your community leaders are doing there uh, in, in Aurora. Uh, it's pretty amazing um, how you guys handle things on, an, on a normal basis, let alone during the <laughs> pandemic, right? Well, we, we recognize that we're not in this alone. We've got, you know, uh, parents and community members who are partners, organizations like Canvas that are great partners, others who have come alongside us to help us as we're just trying to navigate through what's, uh, you know, uncertain and unprecedented times. Absolutely. You know, you, uh, you've created something you call your 10 essential truths. And, and, and I'm going to read them real quick um, for sure. those folks who will be listening. Every child has potential. Every teacher will forever change the life of every child they teach. Every adult in APS has a role and responsibility in teaching and learning. Every part of the community is a potential resource. We do not have enough money. Let me repeat that. We do not have enough money. We will never have uh, enough money. There is not enough money in the world to address all of our concerns. Success is possible. Success is crucial. And time is not a luxury. So, you know, it's probably going to take another podcast, but how did you develop these and how do you, how do you use them as you lead? So when I um, was about to take this job on, as, as you would hope, I spent a lot of time just thinking, thinking and planning around how it would lead, how, what my leadership voice would be, and how I would tackle what were some of the challenges of the district at the time. And, you know, after I had kind of all those thoughts just spewed out, I had to take a step back and say, you know, what, what is personally going to be guiding me? What's my personal anchor through all of this? And I was able to sit down and articulate for myself the key things that were going to be not non-negotiables, I guess, but really uh, core principles of how I would lead the district. Um, and when I was done, I thought, you know, I think it's important and legitimate for leaders to share those things with the people they're going to be leading, to going to be engaged with. So uh, I put that out, you know, my first day introducing myself to uh, the district. I put it on our website and just said, Here's the, th here's the values you can check me against. And if you're ever asking, why is he making this decision? You can look on this list and see the why in every decision I'm making. Here, here it's grounded in one of these 10 things. Well, and, and, and as, I, as I read that, it makes me think um, of things we do at Canvas, but, but 
you know, it, it's like, guys, we're going to state the obvious. Here are challenges. We can't whine and complain about these things. We can't dwell on these things. We have work to do. Time is not a luxury, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I don't want to represent exactly what your thoughts were, but as I read that, that's what it's saying to me. You know, we, we can be successful, but if we dwell on these things, on all the challenges, you know, we, we just don't have time. Success is, <laughs> success is crucial. Time is not a luxury. Let's get to work, right? Yeah, well, look, if, if you don't believe that success is crucial and that success is critical, then I don't know why you're here. Um, and so stating that and stating that clearly, I think is important that that's an expectation I have of myself and therefore an ex expectation I have of the entire system. Absolutely. You know, one of the heartbreaks of this time really has been, um, you know, I watched my, my oldest or my youngest son rather, uh, graduated this past May from CU up in Boulder and he, you know, he missed an entire, his, his, he played football up there and, and, and he worked his tail off for, for his whole four years. And, and, uh, and he was really looking forward to that very last semester to hang out with his buddies uh, who he started uh, school with. And, but it didn't happen and he missed graduation. And it's no different at, at, uh, at the high school level. Very obviously there were a lot of celebrations and things like that. How, how did you and your team approach helping support celebrations for students uh, in, a, in a safe way? Yeah, and uh, we, we recognize the importance that we, we had an entire team just dedicated to how do we recognize certain rituals and not just for high school, but you know, along the way, there are kindergarten graduations, there's fifth grade uh, continuation ceremonies. How do we do that? Uh, and you know, we, we did a couple things. One, um, for example, when it came to prom, which was obviously important for a, a lot of kids, um, we, we partnered with the city and with uh, the city's uh, TV station, and we did a virtual prom so that it was a, it was a broadcast. Uh, kids could uh, send in uh, social media videos of them dancing. Uh, they played the music, and so anybody in the city could turn on that channel or log into the stream on Facebook and take part in that community event. And you had families that got dressed up in their living rooms and dancing. And you had kids sending in posting videos of them on TikTok and other platforms, dancing and engaging and creating that sense of community. Um, and so, you know, for people who was important to dress or the tuxedo that they bought or rented, they still got the chance to dress up and be seen by their uh, classmates in that. Uh, it, you know, it's not a substitute, but it was a way to come together and celebrate. Uh, we wanted to try and preserve graduation to the extent that we could. So we pushed that back from our usual May timeline. Uh, we typically do that in the end of May indoors at the Ritchie Center at DU. Uh, that was obviously not an opportunity. So we got clearance from the health department to do a late July graduation outside at one of our stadiums. And so for a solid week, uh, we did, uh, you know, 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. graduation, so we wouldn't, you know, burn to death in the, in the heat <laughs> of July. Uh, they were socially distanced. We had to limit the, the number of the families that could attend, um, but we also streamed it so that people could have that experience, and kids got to be out there in their cap and gown, got to march into pomp and circumstance, and to have their names called and a chance to be recognized uh, in that way. 
and again, not exactly how they pictured it, but um, again, an opportunity still to recognize them and the importance of that. And then some of the other rituals along the way, uh, there were a lot of car parades. You saw a lot of those things with uh, fifth grade continuations, a lot of yard signs of kids being recognized as you know, graduates or continuing to middle school or those kinds of things. Just lots of ways to try and create community and recognize the achievement of kids. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let me let me ask you a big, big broad question. What? How do you? <laughs> your crystal ball. How do you think <laughs> this time when we get on the other side of this that the the pandemic will have um, reshaped education and learning in the long term? Yeah, I mean, this was a seismic event that we're still living, um, and it will forever change how we do things in some, I think, fairly dramatic ways that we're still trying to figure out. Uh, I would say that the obvious example is, you know, online or remote learning. You know, prior to this, pick a number, 5% of the population had engaged in that. They had experience with it. Uh, now 100% have. And so there's going to be some portion of people who say, you know what, I like this better. Um, and some portion of teachers who say, I, I have found my niche. I can teach in a really uh, creative, interactive way here and something I couldn't figure out in person. And so we're going to have to think about how do we create space for that going forward? What does that look like? How do we structure that? Uh, there's going to be, I think, changes in how we look at even grading, right? Uh, because grading became very difficult uh, in a remote environment, and we're still figuring that out. But I think there'll be more performance-based, more standards-based grading uh, after that. And what that means for uh, those who don't engage in education jargon is that instead of what you and I were used to, A, B, C, D, or F, it will be a performance task, right? Can you uh, complete this, uh, this task within this period of time using this strategy? And it'll be if you can perform or not, right? That'll be the, the grade, those kinds of things. Because the, those can lend themselves a little, little better to remote environments. And so things like that, I think, will be significant changes uh, in the K-12 system. As I think about APS in particular, um, we have to start thinking about how much of our resource are we now growing to provide more wraparound services. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have engaged with a lot of community partners as we talked about in providing those things, but do we need to do more now, given our impact at community, to make sure there are as few barriers as possible between the student and their educational experience? You know, did, did uh, you made me think about this. Did, did, has this changed your approach to strategy uh, as far as with your team? Um, <laughs> I know you talked about scenario planning and all those things, but are, are you guys looking at it a little bit differently now? I'm not sure that we're looking at it differently. What I think has happened is that um, a lot of people's perception around how long something takes is different, right? If you would have, you know, went to a team of administrators and teachers a year ago and said, how long will it take you to create a remote learning platform to engage all of our kids? I think the answer would have been you know, a year, 18 months. Not three days. Right. <laughs> right. And now we have done some absurd things in a very short period of time, and it opens up people's minds and saying, you know, it doesn't have to take that long. Right. You know, you, you'd still like more time for planning, and you can create a 
you know, better product perhaps, but there's also ways to do it where you can get up and running and then learn and adjust as you go along the way, which is the space we've all had to occupy. You know, I, I've, I've been saying to our team, you know, we, you know, different businesses, but, you know, we had to, to similarly, you know, move, figure out how to serve 260,000 members, you know, um, while we're moving 600 and some odd, em, em, you know, employees out with, you know, we didn't have, by the way, 600 laptops sitting on a, a shelf anywhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I said to the team, you know, shame on us if we don't really lean into learning during this period of time and figure out how to be bigger, better, faster, you know, run faster, jump higher at, you know, when we get on the other side of this, um, do you, um, do you think that your, your team, that they've really embraced that, that thought that, you know, we can be stronger, we can be better when we get on the other side. Do you, do you feel like that's how your team is looking at things now? I think it will be, um, you know, our reality is, is that the last four months has been about getting to today. Uh, <laughs> Literally today, the start of school and making that happen. And now it's going to be about, okay, we got here. Things, as far as I know, at 344 here today are going relatively smoothly. Um, now it's about, okay, let's take a breath a little bit and step back and say, how are we growing? How are we moving forward from here? But it's been so focused on getting to today, literally, um, that it's tough to assess kind of what's been the seismic change in that attitude? Mm -hmm. You know, very obviously, I, 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 I know that I don't even have to ask you. I'm sure you believe that um, you are nothing without just an incredible team. You know, brag a little bit about that team, if you would. Yeah, I've got an amazing team. <coughs> Excuse me. By the way, one of the services to our teachers and to our staff is that uh, we have access to free uh, rapid COVID testing. And uh, I just got my, my test, I'm negative, so the coughing is just about my lunch and nothing else. But, <laughs> um, you know, one of the first things I did with my leadership team at the, on March 12th, as I talked about, was I went around the room and I asked them, tell me uh, your biggest crisis management experience. What? And as, the, as people went around the room, the depth of experience in that room was just astounding. And... You know, some of it I knew, but uh, you know, others I was not aware of. You know, we have a uh, team member who was part of the uh, communication response team for the Aurora Theater Shoot. We have another team member who was uh, in the Pentagon on 9-11 and uh, had significant responsibilities in response to, to that tragic day. Uh, we have uh, team members who uh, you know, were in schools during crisis moments of student suicide attempts um, and you know, the list went on and on and when you as you went around the room to really understand and appreciate the depth of experience and the the skill that could be applied to the challenges that were ahead of us and i think that was reassuring for all of us but also it reminded us of how good this team was and how strong it was and then as you spread out to our school leaders and to our teachers we've worked very hard over the last several years to have very intentional targeted training for all of our school leaders. Uh, we really wanted all of our school leaders to have a high level of training and professional development that didn't exist several years ago. But now across our system, uh, I would stack our principals, our school leaders up against anybody in the country. So let me ask you this, you know, brag a little bit about your family. 
uh, how they've been a good support for you during this time. Are, is, are you okay with that? Comfortable? <laughs> hey, we can't, we, can't let your, we can't let your wife know about this podcast unless you brag a little bit. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, look, my, my family has been a tremendous uh, source of strength and, and everything for me. You know, I've got uh, my wife, Kay. We've been married now for 23 years, 22 long time uh, and uh, of two kids ages 12 and 13 um, you know and we were blessed and fortunate that they were old enough to be a little independent during this time frame right people who have little toddlers I'm not sure how they how they manage through all this this time but um, you know they understand um, fundamentally that I love them and that I'm there for them but they also understand what my job is and the the challenge that I was facing. So uh, they were there to support me. Uh, they've been there to to come in and remind me that uh, why I'm doing the work that I'm doing, uh, and to also make sure I felt reassured that they were okay. And even though you know, like everybody else, there are moments of being stir crazy, moments of you know anxiety over different issues always coming together, supporting each other, loving each other. And uh, that's just been tremendous over these last several months. Yeah, let me ask this question, Rico. I, I, I met with a, a group of our uh, uh, Camus family members today, our employees. And, and I had asked them, I said, hey, listen, if, you know, what, what, what during this time, what, when we get on the other side, what is it that you, what do, do you and your family miss right now that, that you can't wait when things <laughs> Are somewhat normal. What are what are some of those things that are passions in your family's lives? Yeah, we love movies. We we love going out to the movie theater and just enjoying that whole experience. And so, um, you know, it's been five months since we've been able to do that. Um, but we've we've found substitutes. We uh, we became acquainted with streaming services over the last several months. Uh, we also were able to set up uh, an outdoor movie theater, a you know, big movie screen, and uh, bought a little you know backyard couch to sit on that we can enjoy and, and try to, to have that experience still. And so that's been great for us. And, um, you know, other than that, my wife and I enjoy the occasional, you know, getaway trip, uh, jumping on a plane, yeah. going to Vegas or visiting friends in Los Angeles. Nothing, you know, crazy, but just, you know, you know every once in a while. And that obviously has not been available to us uh, for some period of time. What are we going to do? We can't, we, we bump into one another occasionally in the fall up, up at Canvas Stadium. We can't, we can't watch Colorado State football. What the heck? Uh, you know, we can't watch, uh, I'm just hoping for any football, right? Oh. Um, if it's the USFL or if it's, you know, you know, some league out of Scotland or something, I don't care. Um, I'm just hoping for, for anything right now. I'll tell you, um, I had planned this year uh, for the first time ever my dream trip. Um, something I dreamed about for years. Uh, I had tickets to the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony and game. And uh, I'm a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and Troy Palomalu was being inducted. So was uh, a couple of other Steelers, Donnie Shell and uh, uh, Coach Cower. And uh, we also had a, a family friend who was being inducted this year into the Hall of, Hall of Fame. And so we had a whole big thing planned, and here we are. Donnie's gel, man. Old school. Going way back. 
Man, I, I, I grew up in uh, uh, Kentucky, northern Kentucky, right outside of Cincinnati. And uh, back when in the 70s when the Bengals were horrible, uh, and all my, my cousins lived in Pittsburgh. So I was a monster Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Growing <laughs> up. Um, changed a little bit over the years. I married a Packers, uh, a Wisconsin girl. So I shifted to the Packers. Sorry, man. Sorry. But I, all those, all those old school pa- uh, Steelers, though. Oof. What a well, team. I, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in the 70s, so yeah, definitely there. And uh, You didn't have a choice. Yeah, you, you say back when Cincinnati was horrible, like there was ever a time when they weren't. Just, yeah, but. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. 1982 and 1989, we were pretty good those two years. Two years. Yeah, Ken. Uh, Ken Griffey. Or, uh, um, um, uh, not Ken Griffey. Uh, Number 14. Uh, um, and that mustache. Kenny. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, and then, and then it was Boomer Esiason after that. So yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for reminding me we had two good years all at <laughs> that time. So let me, let me ask you, um, uh, you know, our time is, is, is coming towards an end. And, and I know, as you said, you have a board meeting. It's been a long day, the first day of school and you have a board meeting, but, um, many of our listeners, Rico, uh, are, you know, we started this to, to, to be a, a source of inspiration and information for um, aspiring leaders and people who are uh, in, in different stages of their careers. And, and we've morphed a little bit during COVID. It didn't seem quite right to just be, you know, c- kind of ignore what uh, we just discussed at, at great length. But, you know, you've had a, a, an inc- just an incredible uh, journey in your career. And, um, you know, first let me ask, and I have a feeling I'll know uh, the the uh, answers to this as well. But who who have been your biggest inspirations in terms of um, speaking into your life and and you know what's formed you as a leader? Well, I think foundationally my biggest inspiration were my parents, um, who they were, um, and who they were both in the community and then who they were in my life were just great examples of different kinds of leadership. And you know, look. Growing up with the black experience in America uh, and the lives that they grew up with and that they had to lead and how they still represented themselves with such dignity was something that I always aspired to, something that's important to me. Um, And then, you know, aside from those personal experiences, uh, if you could see the walls of my office, you could very quickly see some of the people who I think about in terms of leadership. um, I've always been a big fan of Bobby Kennedy and um, Bobby at different phases of his life, obviously, but the way he never blinked from turning into the camera and speaking truth uh, with a sense of clear direction about himself was something I always admired. Well, so having said that, what, what, as my last question, what, what advice would you give to the people who listen to this or will be watching um, again, who are on different, you know, they're at different stages of their journey. Um, some, some truisms, if you will, Enrico <laughs> Munn's life that have helped you uh, along the way that you would love to share. Yeah, I think, um, to me, it's been critical, um, that I was able at a, you know, at a formative age when I was in college to identify what was for me, my life's mission. 
Um, and so whatever role I've been in, whatever uh, place I've been in, I've been able to understand how that fits into that life's mission. Um, and, and I don't know how you lead without a clear understanding of that. Uh, and so finding that, identifying that for yourself, I think has got to be critical. And success is possible. Success is crucial. It's <laughs> not a luxury. That is very true. I'm going to print that out and keep that on my desk. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I got a big well, plaque on my wall with it. Oh, do you? Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, Rico, I, I, we at Canvas Credit Union appreciate your time, your investment of time, this, especially on a day like today. What a, what a crazy time. But um, given your demeanor, I'm sure you're calm anyway, but given your demeanor, it, 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 it probably was a blessing today that, that you guys made it through day number one uh, <laughs> without any major hiccups or challenges or things like that. At least you, you haven't heard about them yet, but, but we feel, we feel good about day number one, but, but I will just say thank you for being a friend of Canvas Credit Union and, and, and a partner as far as what we're, what you and I have dreamed about as far as how we can make an impact on these kids, especially as it relates to uh, those families who desperately need help and as far as meals and things like that. But also, very importantly, for investing your time, you could be doing a whole lot of other things, my friend, um, on the, in the private sector, but you, you've chosen to serve, and, and you serve in an amazing way, and you're an inspiration to a whole lot of people. And uh, I know you give full credit to, to a whole bunch of other folks, but thank you for doing that and choosing to serve and, and being one of our uh, most inspiring leaders here in Colorado and across the country. Um, I appreciate that, Todd. Yeah. Thank you very much, and, th and thank you for your interest in APS and, and your commitment as a partner to, to uh, this district and our kids. That's been incredibly impactful and powerful and, uh, and a great lesson and model for others in the community. Appreciate that. Well, again, thank you, my friend. And, uh, hey, I can't I – can't, I look forward to seeing you in person sometime in the All near right. future. If you could wear a tie next time, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm on it. <laughs> thank you, sir. Yeah.